Welcome to ACME Talks and Live Events. You are listening to a podcast from the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. This talk has been recorded in front of a live studio audience. This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes, which may not be suitable for younger audiences. And the opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. All right, we uh, might as well get underway. Um, so, um, welcome to the Creativity and Commerce panel. Um, I'm Dan Golding, um, as was introduced before. Um, sort of academic and critic, I write for Cracky.com um, and Hyper. So, um, today um, we've got hopefully a, a really interesting panel for you. Um, sort of based around, um, I, I, I suspect we'll, we'll get to the, the, the heart of the, the tensions between creativity and commerce um, and sort of ask ideas like whether it's possible to produce sort of your ideal game without compromising your vision for commercial concerns, um, but also how manageable um, is creative control in the games industry from sort of any funding um, perspective or basis. Um, where do the tensions lie between commerce and creativity, and, and are there tensions? Are they, are they necessarily opposing ideas? We have a really great um, range of experience on the panel today, um, and as I go through and um, get them up onto the stage, um, I think you'll agree with me that there's some really interesting perspectives and backgrounds um, to speak to today. So uh, we've got a couple of... Um, brief presentations to start us off. Um, first of all, we'll, we'll get um, Scott um, Rezmanis up on stage. And Scott's the, um, the man behind moddb.com and indiedb.com, um, websites designed, I'm sure many of you are familiar with, um, for communities of um, developers and players, as well as um, Dasura, uh, which is a digital distribution service for PC, um, which again, I'm sure many of you are familiar with and use on a regular basis, and IndieRoyal.com, which is a game bundles deals site. Um, and uh, combined, um, they've sold over a million games, is that right? To a quarter of a million customers. Two million now, right, okay, wow. So, um, all right, without any further ado, we'll get uh, Scott up. Please welcome. Good morning, everyone. I'm Skorius Manus, as you've just heard, and when I was asked today to jump on a panel with uh, Tim Schaefer, Phil Larson and the Pachinko Boys, I kind of felt a bit like, I guess, the, the little fella in this photo up here. So if I may just give myself the briefest of introductions. Uh, as, as you just heard... <laughs> Yeah, as you just heard, uh, I run the websites moddb.com and indiedb.com. These sites are sort of communities uh, which we call developer-driven, and and what I mean by that is instead of uh, having editors and sort of you know pleading and begging editors to pick up your story and run with it, we allow the developers to to visit and register their creations and share them with the world. Uh, each day we register, uh, we uh, have about 180,000 unique visitors across these properties. So if you are Developing a game and looking for some press, uh, we welcome everyone and uh, any co post that you make is syndicated across our audience. Uh, and I also run the websites 
and which is more relevant to today's discussion. If I can get this clicker working. There we go. Uh, I also run the websites Dezura.com and Indie Royale. Dezura.com is commonly called uh, Steam for Indies, uh, so we specialise in distributing indie games. Uh, in terms of the relevance for today's panel, we've explored a range of sort of creative e-commerce options such as alpha funding and things on it, which I'm sure will be discussed. And uh, we also run IndieRoyale.com, which is a game bundles deal site, much like the beloved Humble, Humble Indie Bundle, whereby every couple of weeks we package four games together and sort of share that, share that with the world at a deeply discounted price, which gamers seem to love. Uh, and just finally, I recently became a, a godfather, so if you are blogging about today's event and uh, need a photo, I made this one just to scare my niece, which you may enjoy. Uh, <laughs> So, uh, yeah, that one's framed on her wall right now. So when she's a bit older and can appreciate it, I think she's going to be quite nervous. Uh, thanks very much. All right. So next up, um, we have uh, David Sermon and Ian Goldston, both from um, Pachinko Pictures. Um, David's a game designer, artist and writer. Um, and uh, along with Ian, uh, founded Pachinko Pictures in 2010. Um, and uh, David previously founded and led the Bachelor of Arts in Computer Game Design degree at Newport School of Art, Media and Design uh, in the UK. And he's also a member of the curatorial team of Games Masters. You, you probably will have seen him around um, uh, the exhibition. So Ian Goldston is uh, also a game designer, uh, artist and uh, writer and as I said before is the other co-founder of Pachinko Pictures and in 2007 Ian won the BAFTA for, for his animated short Guy 101 and the following year in 2008 was nominated for the BAFTA in writing for yours truly. So um, if we could just get them up here. Hello, I'm in a different role today as a much more nervous person. Um, cool, so I'm David, this is uh, Ian. Um, yeah, um, we've got a reel, but I think we should just introduce ourselves a bit first. We um, relocated here from the UK um, two years ago. Um, my background is I trained as a traditional hand-drawn animator and was super, super passionate about animation and then, you know, in the late 90s, graduated, came out into the world with this massive love for animation in the UK, and then the animation industry just kind of imploded. So I was like, oh shit, animation's kind of dead. So I was like, oh, what, what else do I love? Video games. So um, I started to get involved in video games, and in the UK helped to kind of get a festival called Game City going, which is a, a, now a, quite a big indie games festival. And that's where Ian and I started working together. Hi, everyone. Uh, I just wanted to say thank you for having me here today. I'm really pleased to be on this panel, really honored. Um, so a little bit about my background is I, I'm coming at uh, my past has been all over the place. And I started off in theoretical math, then moving into artificial intelligence, and then ended up uh, with an animation degree. Um, and then off the back of that, uh, sort of, uh, fell into games pretty much when I started working with Dave. Well, uh, we're gonna, uh, just to, to sum it up first, we essentially are, we, we do commissioned work, and that's where we're approaching this panel from. Uh, so the three pieces that you'll see up there, the first one was commissioned by Game City, 
Uh, the second one was, uh, well, the first one was animation commissioned by Game City. The second strand of what we do is uh, commission design work, and that was with Mary Media in London. And the third one was for Chapa Chaps working with the Taboo Group here in Melbourne. Um, mm. And that pretty much sums up where mm. we're coming from. I think coming from animation, we're like, you know, super heavily involved in the animation world. And um, for us, it was always like, oh, I wish games people would like take some of how animation people think. And I think like Tim's company is a really great example of like, you know, sort of really excellent pre-production and all of that kind of stuff. But from for our point of view, it's like, you know, the reach of animation is really exciting to us. And so when we were um, asked by Game City to kind of... Game City were like, we want to, like, tell people about our festival, but we, we, we don't want a straight-up promotional message. We're like, oh, we'll do something viral, because that was trendy in, like, Hopefully viral. that year. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, we'll um, save it for the forum. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but in terms of... In terms of um, yeah, the work that we're the work that we're producing. Yeah, commissioning. You know, as Tim said yesterday, using other people's money to do creative work is what we do. Yeah. <laughs> All right, thanks, guys. Um, so I think at this point maybe we might get the the, the whole panel up um, and assembled um, and sort of um, if if we can, yeah, cool. Um, and sort of uh, work through and introduce the uh, two remaining people uh, on the panel, who I'm sure you all know um, from there. So uh, <clears throat> from here uh, we have um, Phil Larson, um, who um, I'm sure um, doesn't need much of an introduction. He's, Phil's from Halfbrick and is the chief marketing officer uh, in Brisbane. Um, and for the last four years, um, Phil's worked at Halfbrick to expand um, their self-publishing and independent de uh, development efforts across multiple platforms um, and is in charge of the marketing initiatives but also works with teams of creative design and brand development at Halfbrick. So if you could welcome Phil. <laughs> Cool. So, um, I mean, sort of maybe by, by way of um, introduction, Phil, if you could just sort of sort of tell us where, where you're at at the moment at Half Brick. Sure, can do. Um, <clears throat> so, hello, everybody. Um, you know, we are in Brisbane. Uh, we have a studio there of about 60 people. Uh, Sydney, there's about five people. And, uh, yeah, right now, you know, we've done, over the past two years, it's been a pretty crazy ride, you know, with Fruit Ninja and Jetpack Joyride coming out and... Um, you know, the number of downloads we've had and, and I guess the, the main kind of uh, challenge we're facing today is um, in the mobile world, a lot of people will, uh, if you have a successful game, you know, you're able to, you know, keep that momentum going with new content, you know, new promotional efforts and new, new anything you can add to these games and um, we want to do that. So right now we're trying to find the balance between um, creating new content for Fruit Ninja, Jetpack Joyride, but also making new games. So, you know, the, the idea of Halfbrick is not to be a um, company that, you know, sticks with one thing or, 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 you know, we want to expand our portfolio. We want to expand to a lot of new properties. And, and you know, since moving from, you know, work for hire, um, using other people's money, um, we've just, our, our, our hidden talent with all of our guys has just exploded and, and we're really excited and we're all, we're all extremely um, busy all the time now. So, uh, 
yeah, thanks for having me, and um, you know, I hope uh, hope we can have some good discussions. Terrific. Cool. So, and the final member of the panel um, needed uh, no introduction this morning. So, I, I guess by um, by that token, he needs even less of an introduction People now. Might be confused by now after all that talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, Tim Schaefer, welcome. Um, I, I suppose for the purposes of the panel, what's um, really interesting about your perspective, Tim, is that um, the wide range of experience that you've had um, sort of uh, commercially within the industry from, from major, you know, AAA publishers to sort of forming your own company to, to getting uh, crowdfunding. Um, so I suppose the obvious question, we might as well get it out of the way now, is sort of where are you at at Double Fine at the moment, um, especially with the, the Kickstarter campaign? Uh, where are we at? With sure. it? Well, we have, um, you know, we went from one big monolithic team with a company to multiple teams, and we have multiple teams doing multiple things, which has allowed us to be uh, much more nimble than we were before, and I think is why we're still around, because the industry keeps changing, and, and I keep turning to you and away from my mic. But, um, <laughs> uh, you know, it's really hard to predict what it's going to do next, and so it's been great that we can try all these different avenues. And we... Um, uh, we weren't really banking on that Kickstarter thing. To, to, to mm -hmm. It was more like that That would be a fun thing to do. That would be like as a side, you know, like a side project or something. And so um, we tried that out, and uh, it worked out. <laughs> like, I like, we liked that. That was fun. And, um, and we still have um, games going on with teams working with, um, with big publishers, so we still have that because, you know, we have put a lot of work over the years into learning how to... Um, uh, I don't want to say cope. That sounds really negative. How to work? How to work really? You know, with big big partners like that, um, and really specific challenges there. And then um, we've also uh, got teams that are working with angel investors too. So we have um, those three different kinds of, of funding. Mm. And the next one we hope is we'll just make so much money that we'll be funding things ourselves. That we mm. try, we'll try to do that next year. What's that like? That's um, that's it's fun. pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. So, I mean, yeah, I think, um, you know, the real strength of this panel is, is the, the incredible range of experiences and the different way that, that sort of each, each, each member of the panel works um, and wh where they sit um, commercially in the industry. So hopefully we'll get some um, really good discussion going today. We've, we've got almost exactly an hour, so should, should get pretty good. So I, I wanted to start with a, a sort of a, a, a pretty broad question, actually, um, sort of uh, to, to anybody who feels like answering. Um, when I first um, was uh, told about this panel, I suppose the thing that first comes to mind is that creativity and commerce are, are possibly sort of um, opposed concepts, right? Like um, making money is, is, is antithetical to, to, to being creative. But obviously um, that's not really the case. Um, and I was just wondering if you, if, it, you know, if you guys thought that, yeah, are creativity and commerce sort of opposing ideas? Uh, I, I can say I, I don't think so. Um, I don't really have a lot of evidence to support that. Well, uh, I I would actually point to some of the biggest um, blockbuster games that invented new genres, like um, when GTA hit its third you know iteration. Even though you think of those as you know, big blockbuster titles, they were really really creative and innovative when they um, when they first came out. It was not someone just imitating something that had been done before. To, to you know, and so I think. Um, 
I think it's not true that creativity and commerce are, are opposed. But the thing, it is, it is challenging that, um, the thing I come to accept after a lot of years is that you really, it sounds really obvious when you say it, but that you really only can have one first priority. Like you really have to make a choice of what your top priority is. And I think whatever your top priority is for yourself or your company, you can achieve it because you put everything into making that one thing work. Um, but everything else is not guaranteed. So if you make your number one priority, we're gonna make as much money as possible, you can probably do that. But creativity and everything is just, it's, you might be able to do that too, but it's not guaranteed. And the same goes for if you're, you, you make your top priority creativity, um, you can probably have make really, really creative games. And then um, hopefully you'll also be able to make them commercially successful, but it's not as guaranteed as um, whatever you make your top priority. Mm. Yeah, I would pretty much agree with that. Um, the idea that um, you know, you if, if you if you make your game to make money, then you're you're selling out, and that your um, you know compromising your vision is wrong. Um, perpetuated by you know a, a few people, and and you know people who are very very you know should be fine artists or something that that are extremely you know dedicated to their craft, and that's fine. Like if you want to do that and make this game, it's it's probably going to be pretty good. But just be aware from, you know, from a business standpoint, from a marketing standpoint, be aware that you're probably not going to make much money. And if that's cool with you, fine. But, um, like, you know, it, it, it's kind of like we, at least in Australia as well, and, and a lot of you guys here would, would sort of be, be, you know, personally involved with this. At Halfbrick, um, we want to make great games because I'm of the firm belief that if your game isn't great, you're not going to sell it. Um, so that's a top priority. But we want to have we. It, I don't think it's too much to ask that we have people employed with jobs and more than you know a, a small team. We want to employ lots of people who can enjoy making games as may making a living, and that's what we do. So, yeah, we we, sh- we I think we have a pretty good balance of um, you know keeping that creativity strong, but you know realizing that hey, well maybe if we change this little bit, that we really don't care if we change it or not. Um, if we're, you know, if we kind of be flexible, flexible and agile, then we, hey, well, maybe we'll make a bit more money and, you know, have a bit more job security. Yeah, over the journey, I've worked with quite a few indies, and usually the best way for them to stand out is to be creative uh, with their the way they approach uh, monetizing their titles. The big guys, they can all work in stealth on their games for two years and then reveal a trailer at E3 that's flashy and shows nothing of the game because that's what works for them. Uh, as a little guy in an indie in the, in the space that sort of I'm working with, it's the guys that really try to innovate, try to push the boundaries and do something different that, that actually succeed because that's the stories that the journalists and things are looking for. So from our perspective, I think... From our perspective, I think that uh, I, th- I think it's a false opposition that we're creating between creativity and commerce. And, you know, it's, I think it's uh, to do with the myth that we create around creativity in the first place and that unbounded creativity is, is the best thing in the world, whereas the real skill in a lot of ways is the ability to edit back and choose the really awesome, yeah, the, the rein in the ideas and choose the really awesome parts of it. And with us working with a lot of brands and sort of applying our creativity for uh, whatever audience, it's kind of, you know, the skill that we're trying to hone in on is really choosing the right creativity for the right mm. audience for the right job. I think all that I would add really to that is just the game production and that's a, you know, the 
you know, it covers a whole lot of areas. This is highly skilled work and that you have to essentially train either yourself or be trained in an institution for a number of years to participate in that space um, in, a, in, a, in a major way and that um, it's just a kind of self-respect issue that you think, yeah, maybe I should be remunerated in, at a reasonable rate for what I do, you know. I think, I think you know, you put, if, you, if you are spending months making a thing and then it goes out there into the world and people enjoy it for an amount of time, it's a reasonable expectation to see some remuneration for that. And I think um, uh, as the really awesome indie thing has rolled out, some, some of the kind of more radical ideas about, oh, you know, you should just slave away in your parents' basement for <laughs> two years and then unearth this amazing, beautiful product. I think that's, it's cool, but I think it's just a more of a, a sign of the times that that kind of idea gets traction. Mm. So, to draw a sort of um, uh, a caricature, like you, 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 we're not talking about any sort of situation where there's a, a studio with the, the suits at one end who kind of smoke cigars and make deals and ensure that the, the <laughs> artists get paid who are up the other end rolling in at two o'clock in the afternoon and, you know, sort of making crazy things and, and fighting against each other. It's, it's a much more fluid and um, holistic process. That, that's what I'm hearing. I think, like, in my experience, like, in, you, know, you often find the business people in some companies are some of the most creative people, and it's actually the artists who are like, you know, where's my money, you know, <laughs> kind of thing. It's like, those, there's, a, there's a real mix. It's down to the individual, how they, how they feel about their work, you know, mm. what their personal priorities are. There is an overlap, though, with um, someone who wants to make a lot of money in games and someone who's more focused on the, the art side of it is that both people usually want as many people as possible to 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 buy the game or see because a creative person often wants the world to see what they made you know they they get a joy out of like a lot of people saw my thing you know that's they didn't want to make it and then put it in the closet i mean some people want to make their thing and put it in the closet but <laughs> but 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 most creative people i know like myself included just love you know the thing either you work on a creative uh project and it gets out there into the world you want as many people to enjoy it as possible so those i guess kind of align the goals of both parties that's true like money is often a byproduct of that i mean obviously tim could release a game for free on pc and a gazillion <laughs> and a gazillion people would download it but someone who's an indie guy would release a game for free and no one would care so it's it's, it's a case of i mean that doesn't always happen <laughs> but um the I that um, I was going to say something that I forgot, and then I touched you. Yeah, and you touched <laughs> me. And I, it, it, oh. um, yeah, it, it's it's just a case of um, you know having that power to be able to to reach that many people, and and often the simplest and easiest way to do it is through a paid market. That's just through the platform tools that are available to you. Yeah. So I mean, we've already mentioned um, indie. So try to sort of move towards um, more specifics here. And, and I think one of the things that's interesting about the rise of indie as a, as a terminology, um, sort of a, you know, a, a framework for, for people who create games over the last five or six years is that it seems to be not so much a statement of financial independence but creative independence and, and a statement of creative control. Um, so I was wondering... Uh, whether I could get your perspectives on, on how difficult it is actually to have that complete creative control in the games industry. How hard it is to have it or to, to get it? Either. 
Um, I, uh, I mean, getting it is difficult. Yeah. I mean, it depends depends how you're starting your company. If it, it just depends who you are. I mean, if you start off as as a twenty year old with a couple of mates, you can probably live on meagering for a while, and you can probably. Um, and if you've got the skills, you make your stuff on a PC and, and you can release it and suddenly you're Notch. And then it's, it's I mean, I don't know how old he is, so but how anyway. how you become Notch? Just wake up yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. That's got a hat easy, on and but, you're like Notch. Yeah. But, you know, other people might need to go, okay, well, I've got families and, and we've got all kinds of responsibilities and, you know, take an investment or, or going through a publisher and then you will give up some creative control. Yeah, you, can, you, get, um, you can get creative control in any situation, I think if you're willing to put in the time to, you have to fight for it, or you have to negotiate for it, or you have to put in, you know, there's, there's different solutions to getting creative control. And I've, you know, when we started the company at Double Fine, we, we went the route of taking a lot of money from a publisher, and then spending a lot of time fighting for this, you know, space to work in. You know, like they, you know, they want to have a certain amount of approval, and you fight for them having less approval, or just fighting for like, look, we're gonna deliver a milestone not every month but every three months or something like that you know, just these little things that you fight for to get control but I definitely later on when the rise of the indie happened I saw you know what these um, companies were pulling off you know small small companies like two people or something and I, and I was very inspired by that and realized that they were probably spending a lot less of their day fighting with somebody for creative control than to uh, actually just working creatively on the game mm. Yeah, having watched, uh, I mean, I, I actually don't make any games myself, so I'm a bit of an imposter up here, but um, one of the, having watched lots of indies, uh, they can usually go down one or two paths and they can choose to make a game that sort of feels a bit like uh, an existing IP like Star Wars or something, and then all of a sudden they, they get a bit of fan base because there's that familiar, familiarity with it and the association that it has. Whereas if they try to be fully creative and get that creativity control, it's a lot harder because if they, they try something totally different, it can be very much hit and miss. Whereas, you know, Double Fine and Tim here or Phil, they can sort of now be creative because you guys have got the brand behind you, people trust and know that you're going to pump out something awesome and so they're going to be willing to try it, even if it is totally different. So I think it's a pretty hard thing for a lot of people to be fully creative. The, the notion of create, creative control is a little bit... It's a little bit strange in the first place to me in the sense that everything that you make, if you, if you want it to be good, then it has to be some form of collaboration in the first place. And you kind of have to fight your own ego to like really work and partner with people who are you know going to help you make it a better thing. So, you know, the way that we look at stuff is you know we don't look at ourselves as working for clients. We think of ourselves as collaborating with clients to you know make something that's that's yeah. going to do the job and going to be fun. When we were when we first started making roller coaster for Chopper Chups. Our first thing was like, oh my God, Salvador Dali did the logo for Chopper Chops. That's, you know, it's like, it's immediately super interesting. <laughs> and then sell out. That guy. And like from, from there, it was like working with the agency, we, you know, you tend, there's this cliche that if you're going to make a game for a brand or whatever, that it's going to be incredibly. Um, constrained, but we, fa in our experience, it was like we would go in with ideas like, "Hey, what if you could change every car on a roller coaster and find unique combinations, and yeah. they give you powers and all this kind of stuff?" And like they were like, "Cool, you guys are the games people. You get what games are, and if you get it, then you get what audiences might want from a game." And they had a really kind of light touch, as yeah. it were, and the agency that we, that that um, was mediating that relationship 
really understood that as well. And I think that, um, you know, design is all about a brief, whether you write it for yourself or you receive it from someone else. And, and the, the brief creates that kind of, um, you know, that constraint. And creative control is about what you do within that constraint, basically. Right. We so got away with loads of stuff in that game as well. Like, uh, there's like, uh, it's a, you know, it's conceived as a game for like kids, but we got loads of stuff like Aphex Twin references in there. <laughs> so, I mean, it, I, I, I'm interested in that idea that actually creative control is not really tied to commercial interests necessarily, and that there are other um, uh, restraints that can be placed on you that, that can actually be quite productive um, outside of commerce. Um, I mean, Tim and Phil, is that something that, that you've, you've found through, through your careers? We put constraints on ourselves sometimes. Um, the idea that uh, when Fruit Ninja came about, we were like, okay, let's make a game that played on one screen, and that's it. And, and you know, sometimes we, we're totally open-ended, sometimes we're not. It just, we kind of ebb and flow with, with whatever, um, you know, we think could be successful and what everyone's kind of feeling at the time. And, um, yeah, it's... It, it allows for a lot more, um, you know, focused creativity. And, and instead of just, if, if we went to the whole, everyone in the company, we have, say, four or five teams who all make games and said, make whatever you want. Um, you know, we would probably get something good out of it, but, you know, it might take a bit longer. Some, but we do have, you know, dedicated prototyping um, sort of sessions. I think uh, we do the exact same thing as Double Fine, right, with the am amnesia oh. thing. Uh -huh. Yeah. What's it called Rap again? Amnesia Fortnite? Yeah, yeah, Amnesia Fortnite. So we do Half Break Fridays. Um, which eventually become fortnight long things <laughs> where we literally go, all right, stop everything, let's just mess around and um, you know see what we can do. And the productivity is great because everyone's really excited. And um, yes, like I said, sometimes we put constraints on ourselves and sometimes we don't. I mean, for all the talk about creative control, I'm, I'm thinking back about examples, and I really have not had a big, um, I haven't been, had a lot of examples where I wanted to do something and some big force you know, with the money was telling me not to. You know, the really creative control has not really been a huge issue, what I kind of, mis you know, am talking about when I talk about creative control is actually control over my own time and where I'm putting my effort. And um, that is a different challenge based on where you get your money. And if you get your money from an investor, your, your effort is in communicating with that investor why, you know, your, your project's a good investment. And if you have a client, a lot of, of, like, the skills you guys have learned have been about managing that relationship and making the client excited about the idea you're you're going to do and hiding all the really perverse ideas underneath <laughs> the pitch and, you know, or whatever. And, um, and uh, when you have a publisher, a lot of your, your time is spent reassuring them that you're not going to lose their money and, um, and making sure that your producer is not going to get fired at the next uh, green light review or something like that. And we I sound so cynical about that, but it's been a, it's been a long time. So, um, uh, and when, you know, when you do Kickstarter, uh, we don't have any of those kind of constraints, but we do have a lot of time managing like our backers, making sure our backers feel good about the, that they back the project on an ongoing basis. And that can be time consuming in that there's a, a forum where they're talking, we gotta read them, read all the comments and interact with them. But um, it's really about just choosing about which of those kind of um, uh, uses of your time are good and which ones are bad. And I've really enjoyed even though we spend a lot of time with our backers making t-shirts and stuff and, and, and signing posters, signing a thousand posters, I'd rather do that than getting a, a, like a fake demo ready for a green light meeting that is a waste of time, doesn't make the game any better. I'd rather be interacting with the fans. And so it's really just, it's really about choosing about how you want to spend your time. Mm. 
So, I mean, it, it sounds like um, there's a certain amount that goes into to managing that commercial side of the game. Um, I'm wondering whether the different funding models that you've worked with have had um, perhaps an indirect effect on, on the way you work as well? Yeah, oh, David, sure. I was just going to say that if you go through a traditional publisher model, generally there's, and even with commercial clients, there's a process of due diligence where they're looking at your competencies beyond the purely creative process. They're looking at the, the you know, how coherent your, your business is. They're looking at your staff. They're looking at all the different layers in order to make a call on whether it's you're a sound, you know, location for their kind of cash, basically. And I think that um, part of wrestling creative control is tied up with demonstrating competency in all of those other areas. And I think that's something, it's a conversation that doesn't happen so much in the indie space, but if you talk to someone <coughs> like Nathan at Cathy, he's like the, he's like super creative, but at the same time has like this gun business brain and, mm -hmm. and runs Cathy just amazingly well, you know? And, and a lot of their success isn't just like, oh, Sword and Sorcery is such a cool idea. It's actually like, he runs a tight ship, you know, as a company, and I think that's really important. Mm. Yeah. Right now, the most successful thing on Dazura is alpha funding. So this is sort of after Kickstarter, but before you've got a polished release, and that is because it's uh, so hard to sort of get your game out there and things. And, but every time you make a post, if you've got a playable build and you can you can invite people who you know to buy it, you may as well allow them. And uh, yeah, so I think that sort of ties in nicely. Mm. So. Um, so, um, Tim, as well, do you, do you feel that the, the different funding that you've, you've um, had and different responsibilities to that commercial aspect has, has impacted on, even subtly, on the, the, kinds of game you, the kinds of game you're making or the, the kinds of decisions you're making related to it? Um, I mean, I, every game we make, we try and think about how to make it uh, appeal to more and more people. I mm. definitely think it comes more from that just that that drive to make something that your your creative your creative project seen by the most people. You know, you, it's not really that appealing to me to make something that no one's gonna like, right? So I definitely think about how to make them have have broad appeal for sure. And I, I don't think that necessarily it, it changes in that the funding source in this in this case is people who like adventure games. So mm. I don't have to make a game that is trying not to be an adventure game or is apologizing for being an adventure game. I can just kind of go for it and make it you know, super adventure gamey, right? Mm -hmm. So that so it does have an effect for sure, but that's kind of a, I want to say unique situation. It's becoming less unique every day, but... Uh, so you've got that, yeah, you've got that idea to build games for as many people as possible. Are you, uh -huh. You're not really targeting any particular demographic when you make a game? Because we do the exact same thing, except obviously completely different in the casual space. Um, which everyone can play because it's so simple and it's fun and it's easy, whereas you go for the, you know, there's, there's an in-depth story and these characters and everything like that, but are you, do you have the same similar kind of goals? Yeah? Thinking about a demographic? Or you, you, do you think about demographics? I, I would love to be better about that. That's pretty good. I mean, I do think I mostly it's, it, it's, it's weird because it sounds like you make, I just think of a story that makes me really happy, like, oh, I, this is really good, you know, and this... And I, I guess um, think if I can make something that I really like that someone else would like it too. So Maybe not true every time. <laughs> Sometimes true. So uh, it's not like you um, 
think of a game and then you think of a funding model. Like it, it, it doesn't work like that. No, well, I mean, in the Kickstarter example, the Kickstarter project started as when the documentary guys wanted to make a documentary about us. And so it started as a documentary project. And then we're like, well, let's make a, a little game that, uh, so that we don't have to ask a publisher for permission to use the footage. We'll just fund our own you know, tiny game. And so the purpose of it was not necessarily to make a game from the very, at the very beginning. And then um, I was thinking of you know, how to make a good Kickstarter pitch and what would make a good, interesting story for this pitch. And it was like, well, I hadn't thought about it. You know, adventure games haven't been able to get made. In a, in a, this is a way to make them which suddenly made, I think, that, um, that pitch really unique. You know? yeah. So I guess, yeah, the gameplay, the game genre came after the funding source. So, so after all that money, did you literally sit back and go, well, I guess we have to make a game now? <laughs> when I, no, it was or, that, I mean, do you had an idea specifically for the type of game or the game that you wanted? Well, in the beginning, it just, it was a, I imagined it was going to be a very small scope because mm. um, the, the budget was going to be somewhat, similar to more like the... The iPhone games. That we all right, so games. just with the more money that you got, then you were like, okay, well, we'd better make it slightly more achievable. Well, all of a sudden, budget. it was the same budget as all the games we had just made that year. So it was like, now it was no different than any other game we were making. And mm. so um, so that was crazy. Mm. You said yesterday that it, it felt like a, and, and it, what it sounds like from that account, it sounds like a, like a once-off event, like a moment in time where the story fits the Kickstarter model really nicely mm. and... You said yesterday that you, you might not necessarily return to Kickstarter. Well, uh, no, I mean, I, I really am just trying to figure out a way to do it so that it's right. Like, I feel like um, there's so much, like, trust. Like, so much about the Kickstarter, like, having a good Kickstarter project is about reputation for being, you know, legitimate and being honest with people. And, like, people are trusting you. with them. There's just so much trust in them giving their money to you, right? You can just run off with it. They don't, I don't sign anything that says I will do the thing I say I'm going to do, you know. So people have to um, believe your project's on the up and up. And so uh, doing it a second time, it couldn't seem, to, you, you couldn't, it would have to still have that sense of um, authenticity. So I feel like it would have to be, it would have to be, um, like I was saying yesterday, the, the first one felt like such an event, such a good, it was like Woodstock, and you can't just go like next year, hey, Woodstock 2, because mm -hmm. you have to figure out some other way to make it also a unique story, also just as in, like inspiring to the people who, who backed it. But I love the way that working on this project and working with the backers, I would love to do it again, so that's just the thing I'm trying to figure out. Mm. Actually, um, David and Ian, it sounds like the idea of trust is quite central as well to, to the way you work with, with clients. Um, in sort of the other gaming space. Well, if you've got, I mean, when you've got a brand and they, um, you know, over the past few years, say they've moved into the social space and they they suddenly they've got a, they've got a number associated with how many people are interested in the brand. You know, like Chopper Chucks, for instance. Chop Chucks Worldwide has like 1.4 million people on their Facebook page. So suddenly all these people are like, oh my God, we've got all these people that are actually like definitely there. It's mm. not like advertising of yesteryear where you put a TVC on and you hope that people watch it and you don't have that number. But like, you know, there's the tyranny of information in contemporary advertising and like, um, they're like, we want you to do something interesting. It has to be interesting. It has to be engaging. You know, the worst nightmare is that you make something and people are like, meh. You know, that's worse than it being a car crash. You know, it's the, the fear of something 
not being engaging. So that's why a lot of our work is, um, rather than being super bells and whist whistles flashy, it's much more about, oh, that's an interesting, quirky idea, or that's a weird little question that it's kind of asking, because that provokes conversation. And cli our clients, and we're quite, I guess we're quite picky, like they tend to be the people that are more interested in those kind of like community and questions <coughs> type situations. Mm. Yeah, and we go through a process of agile development, which requires you know, an extra amount of trust from the client in the first place, because you know, we can't tell at the beginning exactly what things are gonna look like or how it's gonna play. And you know, we're upfront about that, about this is our process, and you know, these are the general feelings that we're going for, these are our ambitions, and you know, sometimes we still put together like 50, 60 page pitch documents to get projects through, but it's still like this, you know, trying to just talk about the, talk about the project and gain their trust, but uh, ultimately it's, it's their call, and uh, you know, we have to really protect that. I think in, like in practical terms, that comes down to things like our clients are very often registered on test flight, which is iOS uh, tech that enables you to send versions of the game to the client. And so the agency will be on test flight and um, members of the key team at the client end will be on test flight. And we can send them selective builds so that they're involved in the process. We don't, it, part of our risk management is that we don't want this ta-da moment at the end of the development cycle <coughs> that, freaks them out, you know, we want them to kind of know where we're going and, and so on, and have some insight into the process, mm. because, um, you know, at so the clients that we have, they, you know, many people don't know anything about games. Like, when you're in the games world, it's like, oh, everyone knows everything about games, but interacting with those people, that, you know, very often it's like, you need to, you need to tell us, like, what this does and how it works and what to expect. You know, mm. we've had clients, you know, and they look at an early alpha build of something where it's just like a green square moving along a spline in the case of roller coaster, and it's like heart attack inducing for <laughs> them, you know. <laughs> and then you have to say, this isn't final art, this is just, we're getting something moving, you know. Mm. And as, as part of the, the milestones that we build up front, we, we put questions in like in the milestones that we set up and say, you know, these are the sort of questions that we're trying to answer with this build and this is the kind of feedback that we're looking from you at this stage. So just as long as you structure the relationship, I think that it can progress really, really nicely. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it, it sounds like, uh, and you guys refer to your studio as, as boutique, um, and, and it sounds like quality is actually um, a central concern. And, and Phil, you spoke before about this idea of the, the game actually needing to be good to make money, regardless of what situation you're in. Um, maybe actually I'll go to Scott there, because I think in, in your circumstances, you, you have the, the luxury of being able to watch all these projects from afar and, 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 and see um, you know, what sort of quality uh, has it, what sort of effect quality has. <coughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I've like, witnessed, uh, we've got something like 15,000 indies registered and uh, we've worked with a lot of them and seen what a lot of them have done. Quality actually isn't always, like, it, it doesn't actually always need polish and, and things for it to work. Like, we've seen, I've seen some really rough ideas that have just, the gameplay and the core mechanics are there, but there's always something, there's always that hook uh, and and, and it's, it's that something that, that usually in the indie space, at least, the guys that we work with, it's the ones that experimented and tried something different uh, that, that ha found that hook. 
Uh, I mean, just the other day, uh, Tim downloaded the Stanley Parable, which is actually a mod. And it's just a really interesting sort of experiment now uh, that, that, you know, the guy was trying just, just to be different. And, of course, uh, Kotaku, RPS, and all these websites picked up with it and ran with it. Uh, so I, I, think, I think the key thing is to always just, just focus on, yeah, that, that little, little something that, uh, that makes your game or whatever you're doing stand out because that's what people are going to notice and that's going to be the first thing that they write about. Uh, it doesn't mean that, that you, know, you base, build everything around that, but uh, you've got to have something there as, as an indie guy. David? Yeah, I was just going to, like, when we, in 2008, when we were doing some of the first Game City stuff and Adam Saltzman and a few others from the States had come over and we were spending time together, like, the hot, the, the hot topic was, like, feel. The idea, how does it feel? And if you think about any... When you're looking for quality, you're in a supermarket and you've got a mango and you're like, hmm, how does it feel? You know, and you go and buy clothes and it's like, hmm, how does it feel? And I think games are like exactly the same. And like Steve Swink, who's like an awesome guy from the States, he wrote this book all about the idea of game feel. And like you listen to Genova and, you know, he'll talk about it as well. And it's just like, how does it feel? Like the vast majority of the time on Lola Coaster, for us, wasn't like, oh, where can we put a Chupa Chups logo? It's like, does this weird upside down jumping feel okay? You know, and we just spent ages, like, you know, Ian doing the maths to figure out the curve that feels best. Mm. You know, like feel beats everything. Mm. That's why Fruit Ninja is better than Veggie Samurai. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. 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 <laughs> well, yeah, I'm totally serious because I, there's an article online, someone wrote, I, I gotta, gotta remember where it is, because I keep telling people about it and then never tell them where it is, where some guy analysed Fruit Ninja that, you know, most people in the casual audience, they don't care, it's just there, but yeah. the reason why it is, it is so appealing is because it feels great, I mean, we had the game running in three days mm-hmm. um, and then we spent three months, instead of the watermelons separating us this way, they separated slightly the other way just to really, really polish that because it's a very simple game, but you know, that, that's why all of the you know, clones and stuff out there, you know, don't do it right because they don't understand that kind of concept. Mm. So I'm, I'm interested. How did you evaluate that feel? We just played games and pl- tested them and... and we In your testing, were you, did you send them out to a lot of people or did you keep it all... Yeah, we, walked, we, we, we sent it out online. We brought our friends and family in. We walked down the street and went up to random people and said, hey, play this. <laughs> yeah, awesome. and we did that a lot, yeah. <laughs> Because it's easy when you have a phone. It's it's yeah. You know it's it's like mu- an Xbox dev kit on your back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I've I've carried an Xbox dev dev kit across the United States and it's oh, it's not good. <laughs> oh, and they oh here's a funny story. Because <laughs> the dev kit, if no one's seen it, has this big thing on the end, which is not like a normal Xbox. It's this big, chunky extra bit. And the TSA says. Why did you put your bomb in your deck? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, I, and I went through airport security, and they're like, what is this extra bit? I said, uh, 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 so I'm a developer, and it's just this extra thing. And they're like, okay, fine, whatever. And I was like, oh, great. <laughs> Sweet. Next easy explanation. <laughs> so, I mean, playtesting is obviously super important in, in assessing quality and, and, and feel. Um, Tim, I suppose you've, you've probably seen um, methods of playtest and, and, and sort of the way that that's conveyed back into the game evolve. Mm-hmm. Um, drastically over, over the years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, um, uh, drastically. It's, it's been a lot sure. of years. Since, so 
Starting with cave paintings. It, um, we used to do at LucasArts, we had a test department, a normal test department. We also had these things called pizza orgies, where we'd bring in, it's kind of friends and family <laughs> testing. It was an orgy of gameplay and eating pizza. We'd bring in all our friends and family at night, and they would play the game you know, all night long and just eat pizza and then meet together and talk about it. Um, uh, we, we also kind of, uh, we still do that at, at Double Fine, but we did a, started internal play testing out of a kind of, um, in the middle of Psychonauts, I realized that a lot of the animators had not ever played the game. You know, they were doing animation and they didn't necessarily know why work. We'd tell them like, okay, the jump needs to have, not have anticipation in it or something like that. And they'd be like, whoa, okay. But I was like, I hadn't played it and it was bothering me. So I st- we started this rule that every Friday, we ed- the whole company had to stop p- working and play the game uh, for an hour. Everyone had to play it. It was called the mandatory hour of fun. <laughs> and um, an hour of fun. We started calling it the Hoff, and then it got into a bunch of David Hasselhoff jokes. And, um, but then we would meet afterwards, and it started this thing that was really valuable to the company, which was that we'd meet, play the game, and then all sit in a room together and be really blunt about feedback. And, and it kind of helps teach people how to take feedback, because taking feedback is not always that, that easy to do. Um, and, uh, and I think really helped and improved the games. But back... Uh, um, and, and, and then with the, like working with Microsoft or a big publisher, they'll often have a really nice usability lab. They'll have like these really fancy um, rooms with one-way glass and eight cameras trained on someone so you can see their face and their hands and their controller and you can you know, th- watch them play and that can be just really terrifying and, and horrible to watch someone you know, just bounce against a wall for a long time and not get past this puzzle you think is really obvious. Um, uh, but that can be really valuable. Actually, they often the problem with those is they generate hours and hours and hours of footage, and you just put it on the side. You're like, I'll watch that soon. I'll watch that soon. You just never watch it. Um, <laughs> uh, when we made Happy Action Theater, it was really great that Microsoft uh, had a live usability lab for Connect stuff every Thursday, and they would bring in kids um, and have their parents sign off on it and have them play, and we could just watch live kids playing the game, which was really fun uh, and really entertaining. Um, and so that stuff has definitely got a lot more, I would say, uh, rigorous. Like playtesting has become a lot more rigorous. And I love this idea of just walking around and handing your phone to strangers. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, I did that. run with... off with one and anyone ever run off with a phone? No, no, no. Um, <laughs> once I ha- we would playtesting Monster Dash, which was the game released a few months after Fruit Ninja. And I saw a guy on his phone. I thought, oh, he's got a phone. He probably plays games. I'll go up and show him Monster Dash. And he was playing Fruit Ninja while I went up to him. And, oh, uh, okay, yeah, we'll try this. He probably just thought game. you had really good intelligence. Like, you, how'd you know I was playing Fruit Ninja? Well, yeah. we watch all our customers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're behind you. Uh, yeah, there's stuff in that game that, yeah. We're half brick, man. Yeah. We know what you're doing. Um, in the, uh, oh, I forgot what I was going to say. It's because you touched me. <laughs> Um, so maybe um, uh, just take a, a slight um, turn a little bit. I, I'm really um, interested in the emergence of, of sort of um, actual game design structures that have their commercial layer um, overtly built into it. Uh, I'm sort of talking about <coughs> free-to-play specifically. And, and Phil, I, I suppose um, maybe you, you could best speak to this. But how, how does that change the way you approach a game where, where sort of the actual design is... is um, Designed to make money? Is that what you're kind of asking? If, in, in, a, in a polite way? Sure, but all <laughs> games are designed to make money, right? No, not necessarily. Okay, I don't, I don't, sure. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, well, Jetpack Joyride was never designed... Well, it, it was... 
it wasn't specifically designed as a free-to-play game. It wasn't specifically designed as a pay game. It was designed to try and do all of that stuff, which was extremely difficult um, because, you know, we wanted to put in-app purchase in it, but we didn't want to obviously blast the player. We didn't want to say, okay, if you go download this other crappy app, then you can get 10 coins or something. Um, so we had the coin system in there and didn't really call too much attention to it. We wanted it to be a part of the overall experience. The way that we invited people after a certain number of games or, or, or the way that the menus were laid out to, to encourage people to explore, you know, they would see the jetpacks and everything that they could unlock pretty much right away because by that time they would have enough coins just in terms of you know, how we progressed everything and the, the get coin menu was there. And then we made it... There's, there's some negativity in this perception about free-to-play that manifests, manifests itself... Um, you know, in the in the user, so that when we actually did make it free, um, which was sort of late December last year, um, a lot of people sort of started complaining. Oh, what? You can't believe you made it free, and then you put all these in-app purchases in it, and you um, and it was like, well, that was we did we changed nothing. We just made it free. We, did, we all the content was exactly the same. We I think we added more jetpacks and more items and stuff. But um, all of that we added new, no ads to say here come and buy these coins. We added no other incentives and and we were pleased to, to pleased to see that just by doing that, obviously with free and you're you're a well known company, you can get more downloads than paid. And we were happy to see that you know it did monetize well. And um, that that was purely based on our original design, which fr- was from a paid perspective as well. Just, just I like I think free to play is really interesting. And you've seen it done a whole bunch of different ways. Some, some of them seem really annoying and like money extraction devices and just they, they don't really care about your experience. And it goes so against, you know, if you're trying to make a, a fun experience or a fantasy world immersive or something, like that, those kind of things can go against it. But um, when people take it less in your face, right, like you're talking about, and I, I, I have, you know, seen um, in, even in the core space things like, uh, like League of Legends and games like that that take uh, some creative routes to... Uh, doing free to play is, is interesting to me because I love the idea of being able to stay with the game after you ship it. I think that's the main appeal to me. Um, is that um, we often like try to make the games as good as we can. We get you know play test them as much as we can, but in the end you're just kind of crossing your fingers like oh I hope people like it. And then you get maybe one patch if you're on a console, but the rest are too expensive, and so you you can't really like uh, keep with your fans. And when they start to ask for something, like who would really like to extend the game? I would, I love your game and I want to keep playing and I just want more content or, or I love your game except for this one thing that makes it really annoying. It's like, Oh, I wish we could have a team that was still following that game. But you know, how do you fund that team unless you have something in the game that is actually generating cash? So it's interesting. And obviously a lot of people are are interested in that these days. Yeah. I'm, I'm uh, not sure where I sit on free to play, but, uh, I think there's a lot of uh, perception thing, and, and so, so this isn't something that I do if I have you around for dinner, but uh, I, I've heard a story where these people have uh, really expensive bottles of wine that they've obviously already drunk, and when their friends come around, they pour their cheap wine into these bottles, and <laughs> that's what they serve their mates. That's awesome. And, uh, <laughs> and so perception's a really big thing, because these people think that they're drinking these really fancy bottles of wine, and, and I don't know, for me, when I buy a game, if I've, if I've paid for it up front, I, I tend to actually want to give it a crack, and I'll you know, persist with it, especially maybe for adventure games, it might be a bit harder because sometimes it takes a while to get into the story and have the characters develop that free-to-play might not work. But I find that when you give something away for free, if everything's free, then people just, it's disposable at that point and they, they try it and they're willing to, you know, they've got, they're giving it five seconds to engage them. And so, I don't know, I, I don't, 
I, 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 it really works as a money extraction device. I think Smurfs right now is just killing it. Uh, so go figure. Maybe I'm wrong, but uh, yeah, yeah you're, yeah, you're totally right about free versus paid. And I mean, people say, "Oh, paid games are dead." Absolutely not. Even you know, as a mobile developer, where the where the free is is you know doing so well, I don't think paid is dead at all. Um, yeah, and there is a different perception. If you have paid for it, you are you're subconsciously willing to spend a bit more time. Give it if you just sit on. <laughs> Sit on the computer and, down, and you know if you get a R4 cart for your DS or something, and there's a gazillion games there, you're just going to kind of yeah. pluck through them rather than actually buying them and, and yeah invest that time. I'm really interested in the the sort of the envelope of what is free to a player. Like, is 99 cents effectively free for a player in the first place? Because like no. part of part of the stuff. Well, I mean, like yeah, well, no, it's 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 but, sorry, go on. Stuff yeah. that we're thinking about as we're actually developing our own titles is. Uh, how we actually price it, because there's lots of data to suggest that actually if you increase the price, then you can have more sales off the, off the back of that. And uh, it's, it, it's, it's quite an unpredictable market. And do you guys have any thoughts on uh, any advice for us? There, there, is that, there is that premium quality. I remember in an old economics class, someone said, okay, they, there's this company that made ties and they couldn't sell ties at 20 bucks so they changed the price to 80 bucks and suddenly sold a gazillion of them. Yeah. Um, it depends on the platform. That, that's very, very specific because uh, I'll talk about XBLA a little bit rather than mobile because this was a thought that I had. Um, XBLA maybe around three or four years ago with the... I'm just trying to think what kind of games were popular around then. Say maybe the original Splosion Man, uh, maybe a little bit before that, you know, where 800 points was the... Standard. I think Uno, when that first came in, that was 400 points. But it quickly moved to 800 points being the standard. And I was like, okay, well, you know, if you release a game here, you know, we'd never had the opportunity to do this because we took so long making our XBLA game. Um, but I was thinking, well, you know, if you released a game here, what I would probably do is release it at 1,200 points because the only games that had gone at 1,200 were, you know, Braid and um, Castle Crashes and, like, a very, very few select top-tier premium games. And I was like, well, it, you know, they have that perception now that if you have a 1,200-point game, then sweet, you're going uh, to be golden because, you know, obviously you need to have a good game and pe when people download the trial, they'll buy it. But um, they have that trust if it's a 1,200-point purchase. Uh, when we released Fruit Ninja Connect, we were like, okay, well, it's kind of changed now because most things are 1,200 points. So if we release it 800 points, we go, oh, wow, savings. Mm. So, yeah, it just fluctuates with the, with the market and um, you know, I don't, I, there's no specific advice in there I guess but that's, that's an observation I saw so I think uh, we should probably move on to questions now actually before we do that I've, I've really been interested to know um, and maybe, maybe we'll have to limit it to a really short answer each but if, <laughs> if you had unlimited funds would that actually change the way you worked you're assuming if I had unlimited funds, I'd be working. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'd probably be really relaxing somewhere. Really relaxing. Well, right. someone else. Who's going to start? Let one of these guys go. Know, We're I too busy imagining unlimited funds. I've seen the photos. I think, like, being having trained as an animator and then done games, I, I'm always, like... I know all these animation people have really awesome game ideas, but don't give themselves permission to play in that space because they're like, oh, games is really technical, and I'm, you know, yeah, I'd like to, you know, like, like Tom, who made 
Secret of the Kells, which I'm not sure if you guys saw as animated movie. It's like, oh, I really would love to do a game, but I don't know how. And if I had infinite funds, it wouldn't be about what I'm doing. It would be about putting teams to facilitate some of these other awesome creatives mm. that I know who are working in that space. Like in Melbourne, like how many animators are there in Melbourne? Like Sean Tan. Like put Sean Tan in an awesome creative director role of a game team and you know with zero pressure and 100% creative freedom and see what he does you know because you know he was like oh, I'm just a kids book illustrator and then he got into animation with Leo Baker and made the lost thing short which is just like incredible so his books were good to start yeah they were with. awesome <laughs> to start with absolutely but that's yeah. Sean Tan can't say that in Melbourne. <laughs> 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 no. He's a, well, just super brilliant Australian kids book illustrator. Yeah. Academy Award Oscar. winner. Yeah. She's on way out of touch. <laughs> <laughs> it's the animation world. It's kind of like the games world, but with less buttons. <laughs> uh, anyone else before we move on to, to questions? Well, I mean, I, I can't speak for unlimited funds, but you know, we're relatively in a comfortable spot at Heartbreak, and we're doing what we're doing. We don't have, yeah. It, we there was a point where we were thinking, okay, well, there was a mix between publisher projects. I mean, we did work for out for eight years, um, and there was a point where we we're like, okay, well, you know, we'd love to be able to just, con you know, be a fully self-funded, fully original IP, make our own stuff studio. And then suddenly we went, to, came to work one day, and I just, said, oh, that's where we're at right now. And um, yeah, it was good. So. Um, you know, we have a lot of cool plans, so and it's what we want to do, and we'll keep doing it and keep trying to be employed for as long as possible. You have unlimited funds, face it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I'd probably just do stranger projects, maybe. I mean, like, think less and less about, well, no, I mean, no, I don't know if it would change things. I'd just get more sleep. Sorry, David, did you want to add Yeah, I was just going to say, like, even, even within games, there are, like, amazing developers like Yoshiro Kimura in Japan who did Little King's Story, which is, like, one of my all-time favorite games. And he really struggles to, like, pull things together just because his stuff is a bit, you know, left of center, you know? And I think, like, more, a more affluent industry could, could create more... You know, yeah. opportunity for stuff that doesn't fall within these very predictable molds. Mm. You know. Mm. All right. Well, on that note, um, I think we have uh, about ten minutes for questions. Um, yeah, there was a hand up there first, and then down here. Cool. So, a question for the whole panel. Um, the we've really seen the rise of uh, metrics and analytics through games. I'm wondering what you think. How you think this has affected the the creativity of those games and there's some perception that it's sort of homogenizing the experience to because we're, we're designing for some sort of lowest common denominator. Do you think that's true or do you think it's actually increasing um, the quality of our games? I can have a say. I think it's a really easy, I, it's a really easy mental leap to say, oh, you know, there's all this data, so therefore design is somehow flattened by the dominance of data, and it's like, I think, I, I think it, it's such a seductive connection to make that there's somehow like publishers with like 
you know, you know, in, you know, in Akira, where the scientist is getting all that data pouring out of that machine, is some publisher somewhere with all this data, like just going like, oh, you know, all the data says you have to do this now, and really, it's like, I mean, that. Just think about the risk <coughs> of that. You've got a whole team, like you know, in Warren's case, like 700 plus people following a vision. If you have someone come in and say the data says this has to happen, it's like trying to turn an oil tanker. You know, it's like you, you can't have these kind of shocks and impacts that come from sudden changes based on data. This, you mm. know, in the end, it is you know creativity that you're dealing with. Mm. Well, yeah, we, we we have analytics, and we get out of it. You know what we choose to get out of it. Yeah, exactly. Um, we, I, but the thing is, I've seen you know I've seen cases in the industry that I'm in where. People are confused. I did everything right that the data told me to do, and my game failed. Well, cause it didn't turn out to be very good. It's like, yeah, if you fully follow the data, that's just like designed by committee. You know, you you still have to create something that you think you'll enjoy, and you think a lot of other people will enjoy. And the data is just there to answer questions you have, yeah. like which do they like watermelon or do they like bananas, whatever. Yeah, that's probably not something intensive. <laughs> you know, like, um, and you still have to ask smart questions, and then the idea, the questions have to come from, still have to come from good ideas you had. So the data doesn't give, doesn't replace ideas. Yeah, to me, it's how you use the data. I mean, Zinger, for example, when you see Zinger, they're mining and mining and mining, and that data, I imagine, is purely being used to how can we get players buying more stuff and you know staying in the game longer and longer. Or you could use the data like, all right, these guys are getting confused here. How can we improve this? It, it really depends what your use of that data is as to how it, how it works out. It, it makes me think of, like, there was a discussion about this yesterday on Twitter uh, while Morgan Jaffet had made a really good point about analytics and using them. And it reminded me of a documentary that we recently watched about um, David Hockney working with a physicist to look at the optics of Renaissance paintings. And he realized that... Uh, like Renaissance painters were using camera obscuras to improve the realism in like their lenses. paintings. Yeah. And, uh, you know, effectively, the painters were tracing. And, I uh, knew it. You know. <laughs> 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 and, you know, it, it's uh, using that kind of... It, it's not wrong to use tech. I think it's really about using the, the tools um, to... <coughs> to make real your intentions, and like that's really what we're trying to deliver to the audience. Um, I want to I want to come touch on the free to play argument and bring in the ethics part of that because a lot of free to play rhetoric, especially from publishers, tends to mirror very strongly gambling rhetoric. Um, and so I wanted to get the panel sense of, of where does ethics fit into creativity and commerce? Well, I think there's there's definitely you can. Um there's such a wide variety of things you can do with free-to-play that you can focus on compulsion mechanics and how to do the same things that they do in Las Vegas to get people addicted to sitting in a slot machine for the rest of their lives, you know? And I think that is, you know, I don't know if you can say it's ethically... I mean, I wouldn't feel good about it. If you ever walk through a casino and seeing the people standing there, you're like, it's not uplifting. It's not an uplifting scene or something I'd want to create. Um, but it's definitely something you can do with, you know, the right data. You can do it, too. But... um there's definitely other, you know, other things to do. Just saying that I want my game to be free, and I want it. And since you've given a game to like everyone; they can all play it for free, and, and it's a good experience without paying any money. And that's not unethical in itself. And then trying to find a way to have that the people who love that game and want to put more money into that uh, be able to fund a team that keeps that game um, 
evolving and having more content and more entertainment and to get better and better over time. I don't think that's uh, unethical. And somewhere in between there is a line. Yep. <laughs> I agree with him. I, th I think I think just a brief point. I mean, game any form of monetization across the history of games has always been fraught with controversy. You know, whether it's you know pumping quarters into an arcade machine or publishers passing all of their um, surplus costs onto the retailer and games ending up being a hundred dollars in stores. You know, it's like it's a really rocky road across the whole history of games, and we're just in a very particular particular moment, but we choose, because of where we're at, to really interrogate the ethics of right now. But it's, I think it's, a really, it's been a really long debate about how you, how, you, how you get people to pay for games. I think it's gotten worse now, though. I mean, what, yeah. there's a lot of iPhone games, and all you have to do is press a button, and you, you, your four-year-old kids bought $100 worth of berries for their current, current title. So it's so easy and I, th I think it's quite dangerous because isn't Korea and Germany and certain countries discussing banning those type of games and I guess if we continue going down this path uh, there's going to be quite a few laws and things imposed around them so uh, I mean when are, you know the guys that really want to earn the money are going to keep pushing those those limits until it happens obviously I can't see Phil uh, doing that anytime soon um, yeah I don't know what we can do about it it's, it's funny in <laughs> In, in this industry, you know, you can go along with what you perceive everybody to be doing and, you know, follow, following this trick and thinking that your internal ethics are totally in line and totally appropriate. But in this, you know, for this kind of thing, you can either look at it as like a regulation model where the government has to step in or see it as like the job of, well, you know, you need the help yeah. of critics, really, and the audience to really listen to them and, you know, I, mean, I don't think we want to make a game that's like predatory and a, like just a cash it's just not cool. game. It's like if your heroes aren't doing it, you know, if like Shigeru Miyamoto and like, you know, Yukio Kuratsugi <coughs> isn't doing it, then I don't think I, I want to do it, you know? Like, <laughs> <laughs> that's it. It's like it's as simple as that, you know? I feel really weird about my life, you know, and what I've spent dedicated all my time to. Yeah, it's up to you. Ethics are a very personal thing. And, like, you know, you did make a point about, you know, pumping quarters in the arcade machine. I mean, I never really did that myself, but, you know, I, and, you know, we're here to honour these guys, and, you know, they've made some great stuff. But, you know, will we be honouring Mark Pincus in 25 years? I don't know. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. I think, I think the, 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 the real thing is, like, whether it's free to play or whatever, the most exploitative free to play games to me, like you, like they tend to be the browser-based games, and and they tend to use energy mechanics. And I think we need to move the debate onto mechanics of free to play to really have a finer grain discussion. Or you know, because you know, in the case of Jetpack Joyride and so on, it's not the same as an energy-based mechanic within within a browser. And really, for me, it's like those games are thin, and they you speak to kids, and it's like. You know, it's, it, it exploits boredom rather than providing a solution to boredom, you know, in the form of genuinely fun experiences. And that's, as designers, I think that's where the focus needs to be, like, create something that really genuinely transports the player, mm. you know. I think uh, this might have to be the last question, unfortunately. This is actually for you, Scott, specifically. Uh, pressure. Um, <laughs> 
It's, it has to do with mods and modders specifically. So the, the title of this panel is Creativity and Commerce, but it seems for a lot of modders out there, these extremely talented people who might be you know, accountants during the day then come home and completely rebalance with a team of 10 people, you know, Fallout 3 or Fallout New Vegas. But the commerce side of this doesn't seem to be an option for them. So I wanted to get your perspective, having worked with these people and knowing them, are you seeing things like... Do they eventually mature into indie developers now that those options are there? Do they shift towards um, modding tools and communities that actually permit them to have an, an ability to monetize their work, like Steam and things like that? Yeah, it's been really interesting to watch the, uh, the modding space evolve. Uh, you know, a few years ago, the only real option to make a serious game was to be a modder because you couldn't get access to the same tools. Um, that you know, Unity, UDK and these engines weren't around and, and so easy to use with so much tutorials and things you know, around them. So modders sort of didn't have the option to sell because the, life, the SDK that they're using, whether it be the Source Engine or the Unreal Engine and that, didn't permit the sale of, of those properties. Uh, why did they do it? It's, it's, it was a really great way to get in the industry. Team Fortress, Counter-Strike, all of these titles, Dota that Valve's brought up, uh, they all be, began their life as mods. And uh, so it was a really great way to gain respect amongst your peers, to create something in, in a big engine that uh, people can play and, you know, they're incredibly popular and they, they still are today. In terms of how they've then turned that around and monetized, well, the doors have really just been thrown open the last few years thanks to digital distribution. And they are monetizing. Dear Esther uh, began its life as a mod. It had crazy popularity and now it's a game on Steam. Uh, Nuclear Dawn began its life as a mod again. It's a game on Steam. There's countless examples of guys who've actually created mods and through testing that idea with a, with a pretty large player base because they're piggybacking off the game that they're building the mod on, uh, they're discovering that, hey, there's, we've got a lot of fans here. We've road tested this. Let's, let's really flesh it out, polish it, and you know, add all the bells and whistles and start selling it. So it's, it's been a really interesting journey for the modders. And right now... There's still a lot of them around, but there's also a lot of guys that are jumping straight onto Unity and iPhone and uh, yeah, other devices because they can. I think Splash Damage are a really good example of that. Yeah, you know where they started off, you know, modding Wolfenstein and creating these like mock expansion packs and doing all this awesome stuff, and it's just like three or four guys doing that, and they built up such a massive knowledge base for of <coughs> FPS production that that became the base for their you know, full flight into game design. So. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, it's incredible watching those guys because they, yeah, they are accountants by day and then at night time they work until, you know, crazy hours coordinating a team all around the world. That's, uh, yeah, it's incredible. All right, so we might have to leave it there. Um, I have, join me in uh, thanking um, David Sermon in Goldstone, Scott Rosmanis, Phil Larson and Tim Schaefer. You have been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings of talks and live events, go to Acme Channel and the Acme website.